Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 29th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to embark on a new endeavor. I don't know if I'm going to do it consecutively. I haven't done anything consecutively in a while. I will probably be alternating this series back and forth, I think, with a commentary on the first epistle of John, because I believe that this one is probably going to be a little long. That's the impression I get. I I don't know until I just start writing. That's the way it works. Everything I think is going to do be done in five or six podcasts takes 15 or 20. And, and that's the way it's going on now with the um, series against Charles Weissman on Saturday evenings. I, I don't believe that tomorrow is part 16, and I'm still not done with chapter four of Weissman's book. But it needs to be done, I think. I pray. Here we are going to examine an apocryphal book of scripture which I have often cited in my commentaries on the various books of the New Testament, especially in the recently completed commentary on the Gospel of John. And this book I have always accepted as being canonical, in spite of the fact that evidence of its great antiquity is very scant, and no original Hebrew version of the work is known to have existed. But rather than judging the book according to the words and deeds of the world, I have chosen to judge it based on its contents. This book is the Wisdom of Solomon, which I will often identify simply as wisdom here. It was accepted as canon in the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches. Not that they ever really actually pay attention to their Bibles, but they do have a canon. But this book was rejected and relegated to apocryphal status by Protestants, who certainly seem to have followed the Jews in this regard. The Wisdom of Solomon was included alongside the other books of wisdom of the Old Testament in the 4th century Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and in the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus. But it is not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so far as I have been able to find so far. At least one source, an online denominational ministry, has published an article on the scrolls which claims that fragments of the wisdom of Solomon were found among the scrolls. I won't name the ministry here, but the article will be linked with this presentation at Christogenia, like most of my references here will be linked. This article cited a survey of Old Testament introduction by one Gleason Archer. I don't know if I have the whole title there. I think maybe I dropped a word out or so. This book was first published in 1974, but I have not yet been able to verify the claim made in this article. In the author's Appendix 4, 
In the first edition of his work, because this claim is not supported by the first edition of this book, in Appendix 4, there is an inventory of biblical manuscripts from the Dead Sea Caves, as he himself had titled it. And that inventory has no mention, no reference to the wisdom of Solomon. But the book was revised and updated in 1996. And I have not yet been able to access that edition, the updated edition, as this information is new to me. So I have already ordered a copy of the book. And yes, it's a survey of Old Testament introduction. It, it seems like that, that's the title of the book, and it seems like something's missing, but I guess not. So I've ordered a copy of the updated edition of this book today because I can't find a facsimile edition online. I can say, I can say that in the cave at Qumran, designated as Cave 7, it is reported by Archer and others that many fragments of Christian New Testament scriptures have been discovered, written in Greek. But these are hardly discussed in any publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I have seen to date. And between Clifton and I, we probably own four or five different, different versions of translations and publications of the Dead Sea Scrolls. None of them mention anything significant that was discovered in Cave 7 because they were mostly New Testament scriptures written in Greek. And what the hell did the Jews care about them? They are not included in any copy of the translations of the scrolls which I possess. While the deciphering of the Dead Sea Scrolls is an ongoing project, since 1967, it has been entirely in the hands of Jews, and they can hardly be trusted. Jews generally consider the wisdom of Solomon to be a spurious Christian work, and they have always rejected it. Of course, the sect which produced most of the Qumran scrolls was not Christian, at least at the time when the sectarian manuscripts found among these scrolls were written. And there are many of them. There's a great number of them. And they're not Christian in nature, as far as um, an acceptance and awareness of the gospel of Christ. They are quite Christian in nation as far as the um, acceptance of the Old Testament and adherence to it. But... They are also, even though they despise the Pharisees, they are also quite Pharisaical in nature, as we use the term Pharisaical today. As I had explained elsewhere, in my May 2012 presentation titled, What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? The texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls reflect a Judea which was under the yoke of the Romans, make no mention of the rebellion against Rome and the resulting destruction of Jerusalem, and therefore they had to be written between 63 BC and 65 AD, which is also fully consistent with my further assertion that they belong to that fourth sect of 
Judea, which was mentioned by Josephus, which was founded the Galilean. However, any absence of wisdom among the scrolls, if indeed it was absent, is not an indictment against its authenticity. Only one very small fragment containing a few words from the opening verses of 2 Chronicles chapter 29 have been identified among the scrolls out of 65 chapters of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So all the rest did not survive except for a little portion of the first two verses of chapter 29 concerning Hezekiah. And the only reason why we could be sure that belongs to 2 Chronicles 29 is because that text concerning Hezekiah was not um, included in Kings, of course, the, the books of Kings ending before the time of Hezekiah. Only small portions, very small portions, from four chapters from Ecclesiastes and five chapters from Proverbs were preserved in the scrolls. If you see the order of the books in the codices, I believe the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, the wisdom of Solomon was placed right between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in, in those manuscripts. Portions from 10 chapters of Job and other books of scripture did not fare much better. Of course, no portion of Esther was ever found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the so-called Purim Feast was not found in the calendars of the sect which maintained the scrolls, so they didn't celebrate Purim. Yet critics, the same critics, do not challenge the canonical, the canonical status of that novel. And we have proven elsewhere that Esther is indeed a novel. It does not belong in scripture. In the 27th edition of the Nestle Eland Novum Testamentum Greco, that means Greek New Testament, there is an appendix titled Loki Citati Vel Allegati, which is a list of locations of citations or allusions, and that's basically a rough translation of the title, to the Old Testament and other scriptures or literature which are found in the New Testament. Under the section for the Wisdom of Solomon, there are 109 entries, nearly 50 of them, I think it's 48, I only gave it a rough count, nearly 50 of them from the letters of Paul, but nearly every other New Testament book is also well represented in the list especially John and Luke and Acts, but also the epistles of Peter and even Jude, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. While we do not always find these citations or allusions to be relevant, we do hope to examine each of them as we proceed through this commentary to see if they are relevant, to see if the apostles did find inspiration in the wisdom of Solomon. And if they did, then that is all the proof we need. If we find wisdom to have been a source of inspiration, 
for the apostles of Christ, that is the best judge of its authenticity. And to hell with the opinions of the Jews, which all um, modern Christian scholarship bends over backwards to follow in this current age. The prevailing conclusion among modern academics is that the wisdom of Solomon was the work of an Alexandrian Jew of the first century of the Christian age, which is, of course, wrong. Proponents of this conclusion frequently echo the notion, as one Jewish writer named Bernstein expresses it, that to David, the poet par excellence, was ascribed the authorship of later songs, just as his son Solomon, the wise man par excellence, became the author of later wisdom works. So, it is commonly believed, and, and that one sentence from that Jew expresses a belief that's quite common among academics today. It is commonly believed that the wisdom of Solomon was only ascribed to Solomon. It was only attributed to Solomon because whoever else had originally written it wanted to give his work more authority than if it had been published under his own name. Now, I don't know who the hell Sirach was, but Sirach wrote a book of wisdom that was included in the scripture. It's in the Apocrypha now, and, and that book made it and, and is actually fairly popular in spite of the fact that it did not have Solomon's name. So this, that this attitude, that this um, excuse just doesn't hold weight. Yes, there are Psalms written in David's name, and we can't guess the motives of the writers, but this argument just doesn't, it, it doesn't give a consistent result. It, it's not so. If that is true, if wisdom was written by somebody else under Solomon's name, then it should be classified as a pseudepigraphal and not as an apocryphal work. In that same manner, certain psalms attributed to David are classified, which are not esteemed by scholars to have been written by David. Some of these presumably spurious psalms, and a lot of people don't know this, but in the Greek manuscripts of the Septuagint, there's a Psalm 151, and among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and from other sources like Syriac manuscripts of, of perhaps the fourth century, and, and I think even, I'm not positive, but I think even some old Latin manuscripts, there are Psalms 151 through 155, and they're attributed to David. Of course, we only have 150 canonical Psalms. So those five Psalms attributed to David that are considered pseudepigraphal, they were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. We do not accept that the opinions reflected by the statement made by the Jew, Bernstein, are true in relation to the wisdom of Solomon. The authorship of wisdom by Solomon is denied by academics for many reasons, and scholars from all denominations, Jewish and Christian, usually only parrot the reasons which were posited by earlier critics. 
and do not even cite, often do not even cite the original sources from where they got their arguments. We cannot possibly address all of the criticisms, which by itself would make for a long series of presentations and which is not even feasible or necessary. Here we will cite the Introduction to the Wisdom of Solomon from Oxford Bibliographies, which was written by Daniel J. Harrington and last revised in 2010 as being fairly representative of many of those reasons. We will only address a few primary aspects of the criticisms as they go on for many pages. And we shall also add some comments addressing them. So our source begins. The Wisdom of Solomon, known as the Book of Wisdom in the Latin Bible translation, Bible tradition, I should say, and we will find out why, is a book about wisdom, its benefits, nature, and role in ancient Israel's history. It is more an exhortation to pursue wisdom than a collection of wise teachings, such as in Proverbs, Sirach, and Ecclesiastes. Now, with all of this, we can agree, but not with what follows. Its implied author is King Solomon, and its implied audience is the rulers of the earth. Now, in light of the substance in wisdom, we can interpret the rulers of the earth or judges of the earth, which is a more accurate translation, to be the children of Israel themselves once the promises of God are fulfilled in them. Now to continue with our source, and of course I will elaborate on that when we get to the actual text of the wisdom of Solomon. Now to continue with our source. However, its real author seems to have been a Greek-speaking Jew with some knowledge of Greek rhetoric and philosophy, and its real audience seems to have been young Jews in danger of slipping away from their Jewish heritage into pagan materialism. The use of the Greek language, the influence of Greek philosophy and rhetoric, its Jewish audience, and the links with Philo, meaning Philo Judaeus, Philo the Judean who was a, um, I can't call him a Gnostic, and I can't call him Neoplatonic because he preceded the Gnostics and the Neoplatonists by many generations. But I really sincerely believe that Philo was a proto-Gnostic and a proto-Neoplatonist. I have no doubts about that. So, the links with Philo suggest an origin in Alexandria in Egypt. And if you look on the internet for the origin of the wisdom of Solomon or some related search term, you'll find article after article after article after article repeating that same bullshit. Note that on one hand, this source claims that wisdom was written to save young Jews from pagan materialism. 
But on the other hand, it claims that it is a witness to the synthesis of Hebrew and Greek worldviews as the author adopts some concepts from Stoicism and Platonism. So it is essentially accusing the author of wisdom, of being guilty of the same thing which it claims that he is trying to redress. So it is manifest that this critic is in conflict with himself, and we certainly will not accept his projection of his own hypocrisy onto his subject. That's what he's doing. He's describing the author of the Wisdom of Solomon as a hypocrite by trying to imagine what his motives were by writing the book at a time when the book was not written. This book is not written in the first century in Alexandria, as we shall see. Where it mentions links to Philo, the accusation borders on slander. Even if Philo may be the only early Judean, and he was, who's writing, the only early Jew I could call him, Philo was writing at a time right around and very soon after the crucifixion of Christ, if my memory serves me correctly. And Philo seems to have been ignorant, absolutely ignorant of Christ, never wrote about him, um, Philo's, the thrust of his work was to bring into harmony Greek philosophy and Hebrew scriptures and syncretize them. That's where we get that word syncretism from, to make correlations that don't exist in order to somehow try to show that both philosophies, if we consider the Old Testament to be merely a philosophy, that both philosophies, the Greek and the Hebrew, really fit together. And they fit together in ways that the world doesn't realize, but they sure as hell are not compatible at all. So Philo tried to make them compatible and... and use um, very Gnostic interpretations where, once again, um, father doesn't mean father, and son doesn't mean son, and seed don't mean offspring. All these words have spiritual meanings where they mean things other than what they literally mean. And, and that, that's the, um, the whole train of thought that seeped into all of the early church fathers and led to the mistakes of the universal Catholic church. Wow. It's deep. The rabbit hole is deep. Even if Philo may be the only early Judean whose writing has survived, who had ever cited the wisdom of Solomon, which he is said to have done on occasion, and on more than one occasion, evidently this accusation began with Jerome, the 5th century translator of the Latin Vulgate, who is said to have believed that Philo wrote the book of wisdom attributed to Solomon. The old Latin version of the book of wisdom is found in the Vulgate, but it is titled only Liber Sapientiae, or Liber Sapientiae, as maybe perhaps it was pronounced, which means book of wisdom. Some commentators believe that Jerome himself had changed the title from what is found in the Septuagint, which is Sophia 
Salomonis, Wisdom of Solomon. So Jerome changed that title to merely Book of Wisdom, and I would tend to agree. There are philosophic perspectives in Philo, which clearly originate in Greek philosophy and are later echoed in Neoplatonism and Gnosticism. It is evident that Philo did not borrow from wisdom as a basis for his ideas, which sought to syncretize the Old Testament with Greek philosophy. Wisdom does not do that. For example, where Philo interprets the term logos after the same manner of the Greek philosophers, the wisdom of Solomon interprets it after the manner of the Old Testament, as also did the Apostle John, to refer to the word of Yahweh God in the scriptures. The logos of the scriptures is the word of God. The logos of the Greeks is whatever idea that you could think up and try to make, try to make stick. It's your thought. It, it's not the word of God. It goes a little deeper than that, but it's things other than the word of God. It's grounded in humanism and not in God. In this manner and in others, the wisdom of Solomon is actually contrary to the wisdom of Philo. Continuing again with our source, it is generally dated to the, and this is still Oxford bibliographies, and this is our last paragraph that we cite from it. It is generally dated to the mid-first century BC, BCE, they say, in order to please the Jews, meaning before the common error, era which is bullshit too, it's before Christ, it's BC, right? It, that shows you their mindset that they are writing to please Jews because Jews don't like before Christ, BC, and Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord, AD. Our source says it is generally dated to the mid-first century BCE, around 50 BCE. Although scholars place it anywhere from the 2nd century BCE to the 1st century CE, or in our perspective, the 1st century AD. The purpose of the wisdom of Solomon is to demonstrate the superiority of the Jewish religion and its great wisdom. The author knows Greek rhetoric and Greek philosophy, as well as the Bible in its Greek form. He adopts some concepts from Stoicism and Platonism, and opposes the Epicureans and Egyptian paganism. The Stoics, um, if my memory serves me correctly, had forsaken revelry and, and the expression of emotions and things like that and sought to detach themselves from their emotions and the world around them. Um, I'm sure that some of those... I'm sure that some of those ideas are grounded in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament, but I don't think that they came from Stoicism into the wisdom of Solomon. I seriously doubt that, even though there might be some things in common. There are probably some things in common with the Hebrew Bible and every single worldly philosophy.
And when you have a book of wisdom like Solomon or, or even like Proverbs, well, I'm sure that if, if you could get some, I, I don't know, some, I, I don't even want to read anything written by a beast, but if you could get the, the sayings of um, some sage from some other religion and, and compile them because they never really wrote them down for themselves, you would probably have a lot in common in the Proverbs. I'm sure there would be things in common with the Proverbs and you could look at it and say, aha, uh -huh. well, that's not the way to approach scholarship and the provenance of documents. It simply isn't. If the purpose of the wisdom of Solomon is really to demonstrate the superiority of the Jewish religion and its great wisdom, the Jews themselves were never convinced of that since they have always rejected this book. With the apparently single exception of Philo. But apart from Philo, Many critics of wisdom have argued that it has much in common with Plato and other varieties of Greek philosophy popular in the Hellenistic period. And for that, we may see a paper titled The Wisdom of Solomon and Plato, which was written and published in 1936. I won't repeat any of it here. However, all such opinions, all such opinions are premised on the myth that the ancient Israelites lived in a bubble, that their religion and culture were markedly different from all of the surrounding nations, and that there was relatively little cultural exchange between them and their neighbors. This, in turn, is founded on another false premise, which is the claim that modern Jews are ancient Israelites. And ancient Israelites must have been similar to modern Jewry, modern Jews, and Judaism. Rather, we have already shown that the ancient Israelites had many simil cultural similarities with the ancient Greeks, many more than they ever had with the Jews. They certainly had no affinity with modern Jews, except for Jewish claims that the Old Testament is their book, and it's not. Doing this, in a June 2010 presentation given here, which was titled, Greek Culture is Hebrew, we had cited at length the tragic poets Aeschylus and Euripides, both of the 5th century BC, in order to prove our assertions. But we later discovered a rather voluminous work published in 1878, Scripture Parallels in Ancient Classics or Bible Echoes by one Crawford Tayet Ramage, which treats the subject in even greater detail. As we can verify in ancient history that the Dorian and Danan Greeks did indeed have their roots in ancient Israel, and the Ionians also had exchanges in trade and culture with the ancient Israelites, it is much more plausible that since the Greeks did not even begin writing until late in the 7th century BC, and I know that some people date Homer and Hesiod to the 8th century BC, but I don't accept that, since the Greeks did not even begin writing until late in the 7th century BC, that they received much of their early philosophical and wisdom knowledge from the Hebrews. And even if the Greeks began writing in the 8th century, 
BC or the 9th century BC. That's still 500 years after Moses. That's still 150, 200 years after David and Solomon. When the Greeks did begin writing, they used an alphabet that was derived from the alphabet of the Hebrews. The concept of wisdom, Sophia, was personified as a woman by Solomon in his book of Proverbs. Nearly 400 years before Homer conceived the Iliad or Hesiod, his Theogony. And they represent the earliest extant Greek writing. So returning once again to our source. There are three major parts in the book. Speaking, I'm sorry, I did have, I have two more paragraphs. I thought I was done with Oxford bibliographies on the wisdom of Solomon. And I'm not, I have two more paragraphs from it. And more comments. There are three major parts in the book. Righteousness, immortality, from chapters 1 to 5. Righteousness and immortality. The nature of wisdom, from chapters 6 through 9. And wisdom's role in the early history of Israel, chapters 10 through 19. All three parts seem to have been composed by the same author, though perhaps at different times, or at least in the same circle. And I will explain that momentarily. The transitions between the various parts serve to meld them into a literary unity of some sort, so that it is difficult to decide exactly where one part ends and the next one begins. There are frequently different parts to significant works of literature. Other critics attempt to divide these and attribute them to different authors. But there is no true basis for that. Here the critic says that they seem to be composed by the same author, or at least in the same circle. This echoes a suggestion, which is said to be found in the Muratorian canon, that wisdom was written by the friends of Solomon in his honor. However, there is no historical proof of that. And the precise date and provenance of the Muratorian canon is itself highly debatable. So it's not to be um, automatically accepted as an authority, even though it is useful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now our source concludes. The wisdom of Solomon, or we conclude with our source actually, the Wisdom of Solomon is canonical and in the Catholic and Orthodox Christian traditions. <clears throat> While not canonical in the Jewish and Protestant traditions, it is generally respected as a witness to the synthesis of Hebrew and Greek worldviews, which I would contest that. The development of Jewish beliefs in life after death which I would also contest, and the encyclopedic nature of wisdom and personified wisdom as God's agent in creation, which Solomon had also already done in Proverbs. Of course, we do not care what the Jews think of life after death, especially since they don't have any. And at the time of Christ, the Judeans themselves were clearly divided on the subject.
while at the same time, many of them, because they were certainly not of Israel, had also denied the resurrection of Christ. However, the Old Testament is not Jewish, and neither was Jesus, and neither is the wisdom of Solomon. The authenticity of the first epistle of another Clement, not Clement of Alexandria, but Clement of Rome, the late first century bishop of Rome, which was a letter written to the Corinthians, his first epistle. The authenticity of this writing is not challenged, and it is generally believed to have been composed as early as 70 AD. It was actually considered canonical scripture by some early churches. Although some scholars argue for a later date, even as late as 140 AD, a consensus dates it to around 96 AD. And while it does not contain Clement's name, it has traditionally always been attributed to him. In the 27th chapter of the epistle, we read, By the word of his might, he established all things, and by his word, he can overthrow them. Who shall say unto him, What have you done? Or who shall resist the power of his strength? These last two clauses, these two questions, are rightly esteemed by scholars to have been a quotation from, from Wisdom chapter 12, verse 12, which we will also discuss much later in relation to some of the criticisms against wisdom. But this is in a passage where the author of First Clement made several other quotations from Scripture. While the epistle does not mention wisdom specifically, the near-exact copy of two entire clauses certainly shows that wisdom is the most likely source of the quote. In chapter 3 of his epistle, there is another apparent quote from Wisdom chapter 2, but it's only a short phrase of four words. Of the other, and, and the point of presenting that information was to show that Clement of Rome evidently accepted the wisdom of Solomon as being canonical. He accepted it to the point where he actually quoted from it as a scripture, as an authority on scripture. Of the other early so-called church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Cyprian, all accepted the attribution of wisdom to Solomon. And the work was also named by that title in the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which was considered to be a very early work. In fact, by mainstream scholars, and for a long time now, the Didache and First Clement, the first epistle of Clement that I just cited. Those two books were, um, were and are considered to be the two earliest Christian writings found outside of the New Testament, and they both accepted the wisdom of Solomon. Of the other church fathers, Origen was skeptical about the attribution 
and from the third, fourth century on. Origin is the middle of the third century, and I really don't care about the opinions of the church fathers after that time for diverse reasons, right? Melito, a bishop of Sardis in the middle of the second century, had a canon which was preserved in the writings of Eusebius, and it included the wisdom of Solomon, where it was positioned between the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, where we believe it certainly belongs. We will not make citations from those writers who accepted wisdom as having belonged to Solomon. But here we will cite passages where Origen mentions the work, which reflect his skepticism. Now, before moving on to Origen, we will first cite another contemporary source supporting what we have said here, which is an introduction to wisdom and poetry of the Old Testament by Donald Berry, published in 1995. I have not read the entire book, and I cannot speak for it, except to say that Berry's comments on the early Christian view of the wisdom of Solomon are indeed accurate, even if we also disagree with some of his conclusions. This edition of his book at Google Books has no page numbers, but this was found in Chapter 3 of Part 1 under, of the book under the subtitle Wisdom in Patristic Literature, patristic meaning the Church Fathers. The Doctrina Apostolorum, the Doctrine of the Apostles, the Teachings of the Apostles, the Didache, Barnabas, and First Clement, the Epistle to Barnabas, which I do not accept as canonical. And First Clement, quote and allude to the wisdom of Solomon more than any other wisdom book. So with the Doctrina Apostolorum or, or the Didache, that's significant. With First Clement, that's significant. They quote from the wisdom of Solomon more than any other wisdom book. The Greek concept of wisdom contained in the wisdom of Solomon may contribute to its popularity. Now, I reject this because the concept of wisdom contained in the wisdom of Solomon is the same concept of wisdom contained in the Proverbs of Solomon. Our author continues, the equation of Torah and wisdom in the wisdom of Solomon exercised appeal as well. And I'll get to that in a moment because that's hypocritical, that there's a problem, there's a conflict there. The fathers understood moral discipline as the epitome of Hebrew wisdom. This preference for the wisdom of Solomon dissipated after the first century. There we go. The earliest Christians were not fools. The earliest Christians were not a bunch of dummies who just got foisted on they just got this book foisted on them by some Alexandrian Jew, and they all accepted it. That's the story that modern academics want us to believe. That the earliest Christians fell for this shit. But these smart Christians that came along 300 years later got rid of this book. Yeah, right. I'm going to fall for that. <laughs> wow. No, I'm not going to fall for that one. I'm sorry, it ain't happening. <laughs> I'm not falling for that, Jews. <laughs> okay. 
There's a lot of digressions this evening. Oh, I get pretty wound up about this when I have to read trash from people that are supposedly um, university professors. And, and we're going to get to more of that later before this ends. University professors who are total idiots. I'm going to prove it. Sorry. This preference, this is Donald Berry, says this preference for the wisdom of Solomon dissipated after the first century. Select passages from one Clement reveal interests in wisdom related to canonical wisdom. The prayer begun in 1 Clement chapter 59 connects God's wisdom in creation to the moral wisdom of believers. And actually it should be the other way around, but that's okay. God's own beneficence in creating a good world acts as incentive for Christians to live with kindness. In previous chapters, the book of 1 Clement offered quotations from Job and Proverbs to encourage moral conduct. Now, we must disagree with Barry's statement that the wisdom of Solomon represents a Greek concept of wisdom, as the Greek philosophers were humanists, and wisdom speaks only of the wisdom of God found in his word in the Holy Scriptures. Seemingly, to us, Berry contradicts himself, where he next mentions the equation of Torah and wisdom in the Wisdom of Solomon. But that is not why we made the citation, where we only endeavored to find further support for what we have already said about early Christian opinions of the book. You cannot say that the Book of Wisdom had a Greek concept of wisdom, and at the same time, say that the equation of Torah, which is the books of Moses, and wisdom in the wisdom of Solomon exercised appeal as well. If you equate the wisdom in the wisdom of Solomon to the word of God in the Old Testament, it has nothing in common with the Greek concept of wisdom. It was expressed in terms that the Greeks also used the personification of an ideal, Sophia. But Solomon did that 400 years before any Greek ever picked up a damn pencil. That's the truth. Or at least before any Greek had written anything which actually survived. That's probably more accurate. So now, now that we have the opinions of these earliest Christians about the wisdom of Solomon. Now we shall discuss the skepticism of Origen, who lived and wrote in Alexandria in the third century, around the same time as Tertullian and Cyprian. I think he died in a year very close to the year that Cyprian died. I don't really like Origen either. Origen was a student of Clement of Alexandria and a successor and he did some good work. He gave us the hexapla. It didn't survive, but the parts that did, we have found some value in. But the um, his religious writing, he, he also has um, shades of Gnosticism and Neoplatonism and the other poisons that seeped into these church fathers through the pagan past that most of them had origin in book one, chapter two of his origin 
de principis, that's the principles of origin. Citing Wisdom, chapter 7, verse 25, he had written, now we find in this in the treatise called The Wisdom of Solomon, the following description of the wisdom of God. For she is the breath of the power of God and the purest efflux of the glory of the Almighty. Origen cited wisdom again later in that same chapter, and also in Book 2, Chapter 3 of the same work, where he wrote, Having discussed these points regarding the nature of the world to the best of our ability, it does not seem out of place to inquire what is the meaning of the term world, which in Holy Scripture is shown frequently to have different significations. For what we call in Latin mundus, or mundo is probably a more familiar term from the back of our dollar bills. I think it's mundo, I'm not sure. For what we call in Latin mundus is termed in Greek, cosmos, and cosmos signifies not only a world, but also an ornament. Finally, in Isaiah, speaking of the Greek copies of Isaiah, Origen is imagining that Isaiah wrote in Greek, I guess. Finally, in Isaiah, where the language of reproof is directed to the chief daughters of Zion, and where he says, Instead of an ornament of a golden head, thou wilt have baldness on account of thy works. He employs the same term to denote ornament as to denote world, which is cosmos. For the plan of the world is said to be contained in the clothing of the high priest, as we find in the wisdom of Solomon, where he says, For in the long garment was the whole world. And that's the end of my quote from De Principis, Book 1, Chapter 2. But this shows that even Origen struggled with defining the biblical concept of world. And we cited that same passage of wisdom when we explained that concept as we addressed John 3.16. Origen seems to have accepted the passage in wisdom even if he did not realize its implications. So he cited the wisdom of Solomon as an authority. Later, in Book 4 of De Principis, Origen admitted that the canonical status of wisdom was questioned by others, where he wrote, And if this word, matter, should happen to occur in any other passage, it will never be found, in my opinion, to have the, and this is a very important, to me, this is a very important passage for other reasons. This word matter, Origen is admitting that they're looking for the word to bear a certain signification, a certain definition, but they can't find it. And if this word matter should happen to occur in any other passage, it will never be found, in my opinion, to have the signification of which we are now in quest. Unless perhaps in the book which is called The Wisdom of Solomon, a work which is certainly not esteemed authoritative by all. In that book, however, we find written as follows. For thy almighty hand 
that made the world out of shapeless matter wanted not means to send among them a multitude of bears and fierce lions. He was citing Wisdom 11.17, and even though he is hesitant, all of his citation together showed that he at least accepted the work as being authoritative. This statement by Origen also proves something else which we have often contended at Christogenia that the early so-called church fathers sought ways to define words which would fit their doctrines. The signification of which we are now in quest, rather than understanding them by what they meant when they were originally spoken in the historical context of Scripture. But aside from Origen's skepticism, the critics of the wisdom of Solomon find other reasons to reject its claimed authorship. And one of those is the, the supposed knowledge of Greek philosophy, rhetoric, and language of its writer, or perhaps its translator, even though no Hebrew copy was ever found. But the critics do admit the occurrence of Hebraisms in the text. Making these assessments, they find reasons to reject the notion that the work may have been translated from Hebrew into Greek by someone who was actually learned in those things. They also do not even acknowledge that philosophical knowledge, devices of rhetoric, and eloquence of prose existed among the Hebrews long before the Greeks even began writing. There seems to be among certain academics a steadfast refusal to see that Greek philosophy and rhetoric did not originate exclusively with Greeks, but was actually preceded by that of the Hebrews, even if it is not always fully developed in the Old Testament. Philologists the people that study words, right? The people that study literature. Philologists, grammarians, and other students of ancient literature love to identify or learn to identify certain grammatical or rhetorical phenomena or constructs, many of which are far beyond the rudimentary elements of grammar, and then argue over whether or not particular passages in ancient literature have the qualities necessary to be considered as examples of a particular construct. Among these are the Sorites, and that's actually a word, Sorites, and we will explain it, and the Pseudo-Sorites, that basically means fake Sorites, right? the Sorites and the Pseudo-Sorites. The word Sorites comes to us through Latin from the Greek word Soros, which means heap. The Pseudo-Sorites is much more obscure and, in my opinion, often ambiguous, while the Sorites is much more recognizable. One professor in biblical studies, Richard Patterson, wrote a paper attempting to more clearly identify and 
define the construct, the pseudocerites, titled An Overlooked Scriptural Paradox, the pseudocerites. I was not entirely impressed with the endeavor. One source, Wiktionary.org, defines sorites as a series of propositions whereby each conclusion is taken as the subject of the next. That is perhaps an oversimplification. And Merriam-Webster defines it more technically as an argument consisting of propositions so arranged that the predicate of any one forms the subject of the next and the conclusion unites the subject of the first proposition with the predicate of the last. A predicate is part of the sentence or clause containing a verb and stating something about the subject. So, in other words, in the sentence, the ball is red, the ball is the subject, and is red is the predicate. It says something about the ball, right? The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, and I will better define the Sorites the, the as we proceed. The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges states in a footnote where it presents chapter six of the near wisdom of Solomon that the nearest approach to Sorites in the Bible seems, seems to be Hosea chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, Romans chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Now, Joel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 are also referenced as examples of the Sorites. Here we see a reference to Hosea, where one example of a Sorites is found. Hosea chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. I'm not going to read these passages here. We don't really need to. But if you go look at them, perhaps after this podcast, after this presentation, you'll find um, exactly what we are going to take our example of from Wisdom chapter 6 because that's the passage that the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges is really discussing. But we have these other examples of the Sorites in Scripture, that linguistic or grammatical or philological construct, whatever you want to call it. I would call it a literary construct would probably be the most accurate description, or rhetorical construct. Additionally, and this is in relation to the um, Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, um, singling out this occurrence of the rhetorical construct, the Sorites in Hosea chapter 2, Patterson the um, author of the paper on the pseudo-Sorites, Patterson had stated in his article, in reference to the pseudo-Sorites, that in the unique case of Hosea, this rhetorical device is especially pronounced. So we have these um, rhetorical constructs 
the Sorites and the Pseudo-Sorites appear in Joel, appear in Hosea, appear in scriptures that were written because Hosea was written before the Greek writers started writing. These rhetorical constructs that Greeks are later famous for are in Hebrew scriptures before the Greeks even started writing. Wow. But these academics will argue that the wisdom of Solomon copied that these Greek rhetorical devices and, and must have been familiar with this Greek philosophy. That's just wrong. That's just dead wrong. It's just bullshit. The Greek philosopher Aristotle made frequent use of these sorites. And while the construct may be used frequently in the writings of Aristotle, it is apparent that he certainly did not invent the device. Not only is there a similar construct found, as identified by Bible scholars in Hosea chapter 2, but also in Homer's Iliad, in book 2, just after line 100, where a description of the succession of Agamemnon to his, the succession of Agamemnon to his position of lordship over Argos and the Isles of the Sea is described by Homer using a Sorites. There is a significant form of the Sorites in Wisdom chapter 6, where we read, For the very true beginning of her is the desire of discipline. This is her is wisdom personified, right? For the very true beginning of her is the desire of discipline. And the care of discipline is love. So you see we had um, the desire of discipline and move to the care of discipline is love. So, and love is the keeping of her laws. So we're creating a stack or the word sorites comes from the Greek word sorus, which is a pile. That's all it means. So we're creating a pile, a stack of these concepts. And the second one depended on the first one and the third one depended on the second one. So now I'm going to read it again. For the very true beginning of her, is the desire of discipline, and the care of discipline is love, and the love is the keeping of her laws. And giving heed unto her laws is the assurance of incorruption, and incorruption makes us near to God. Therefore, now this is the conclusion, the desire, we go back to that word desire used in the first argument, the desire of wisdom brings us to a kingdom. That's a Sorites. That's the, a rhetorical construct. And it is found in um, shorter form in Romans and 2 Peter and in Hosea chapter 2 and in Joel chapter 1 verse 3 and in Joel chapter 1 verse 4. So there are that this um, rhetorical construction is much older than Aristotle. And by my argument, Hosea precedes Homer. So the author of wisdom didn't necessarily get this from Aristotle. He didn't have to be um, familiar with the philosophy of the Greeks in order to write in this manner. He just didn't. But because the Sorites is associated with Aristotle and Greek philosophy, and since it became more developed in that literature, 
then those examples which are found in the scriptures, the scriptures that are universally accepted as being canonical, then where it appears in the wisdom of Solomon, it is claimed that the device was taken from Greek philosophical writings. That's not true. So that is one premise upon which it is argued that the wisdom of Solomon must have had a late authorship. But we would contend that neither Hosea nor Homer had invented these Sorites. But since there are clear examples of the Sorites in canonical scripture predating even Homer, regardless of how crude one thinks they may appear, compared to the more complex, sophisticated rhetoric of the philosophers, since the Sorites predates Aristotle, even in Greek writings, the arguments against the ancient authorship of the Wisdom of Solomon on that basis is also vain, aside what is generally perceived as Greek grammar and rhetoric. Further arguments against early authorship of the Wisdom of Solomon are premised on its similarities with other Hebrew scriptures that were translated into Greek. But they will also be exposed as nonsense. Dating the Wisdom of Solomon, the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, which was published in 1909 by Cambridge University in England, had stated the following in its introduction. As will be seen below, the Solomonic date for the Book of Wisdom is impossible, according to them. Some writers have placed it as early as the end of the 3rd century BC, others as late as the middle of the 1st century AD. Wisdom could not have been written before the beginning of the 2nd century BC. This is proved by its relation to the Greek version of the prophets and Hagiographa, a name for other holy writings such as Psalms and Job. Undoubted use, and we're going to pull this apart because this is, this is Cambridge University and this is bullshit. Undoubted use is made of the Greek version of Isaiah, and they cite Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, I'm sorry, they cite the wisdom of Solomon chapter 2, verse 12, and ask us to compare it to Isaiah 3.10. And they cite wisdom 15.10 and ask us to compare it to Isaiah 44.20. And we will. We will compare it. Undoubted use is made of the Greek version of Isaiah, the author quoting from the Greek where it differs from the Hebrew, and we will see if that is true or not, and of Job. And in relation to Job, they are citing Wisdom 12.12, chapter 12, verse 12, and ask us to compare Job 9.12 and 9.19, and we will. Accordingly, wisdom was written after these books were translated. So they are claiming that there are quotes of Isaiah and Job in, in wisdom, which are quotes verbatim of the Greek, and that those quotes are the basis for their claim, or they call it a proof of their claim, that wisdom was written after Job and Isaiah had been translated into Greek. And the earliest that happened, if we accept the general, um, 
the, the general description of the creation of the Septuagint found in Josephus. The earliest that happened is about 280 or 270 BC, I believe. So they're insisting that the wisdom of Solomon had to be written long after 270 BC, around the beginning of the second century BC, which would be 200 BC, right? So <clears throat> now we shall make comparisons of the wisdom of Solomon with Isaiah and Job by which the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges argued that it must have been written sometime later than the Septuagint versions of these other books were translated. When we do this, we shall see that their arguments are specious. They have no merit whatsoever. So here we shall reproduce these passages and include Brenton's English translation, although we do not always agree with his translations. And, and I will try to shorten the readings of the Greek for our purposes here this evening for the podcast, but the entire Greek passages are in my notes, and in the Greek, the words in question are underlined, so that anybody that even doesn't read Greek should be able to see them. So for the first example cited by the Cambridge Bible, it claims that Wisdom 2.12 quotes from Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10. Wisdom chapter 2, verse 12 reads, Therefore, let us lie in wait for the righteous, because he is not for our turn. And those words, for the righteous, because he is not for our turn, are the words in question. And he is clean contrary to our doings. He upbraids us with our offending the law and objects to our infamy, the transgressings of our education. Now, where Brenton has, because he is not for our turn, he followed the King James Apocrypha. In my opinion, as I have read much of the Greek, but have not quite studied it fully, Breton had done this frequently in his translations of the apocryphal books of the Septuagint, where he followed the King James Version rather than actually translating the Greek. And I caught him doing this a lot. I have a whole list of passages. Here, Breton would have done better to write, for he is burdensome to us, as he translated the same phrase much better in Isaiah 3.10. Woe to their soul, for they have devised an evil counsel against themselves, saying against themselves, let us bind the just, for he is burdensome to us. Therefore, they shall eat the fruits of their works. Now, the phrase in question is the just, for he is burdensome to us. That comes from six Greek words. Ton dekahion hodi dus Christus. Hamin estin, the just because to us he is burdensome. That's exactly how I would translate that. So the editors of the Cambridge Bible claimed that this six-word phrase, tondekahion hodi dus Christus Haman estin, which is found in the wisdom of Solomon, is a quote from Isaiah. And they use that as a proof of their claim that wisdom was not written until after the Septuagint was translated. So, let's think about this. The author of wisdom needed to say, for he is burdensome to us, in Greek. 
And to do so, he found it necessary to consult a translation of Isaiah in order to construct an ordinary Greek phrase. And at the same time, they claimed that this author was knowledgeable of Greek language and philosophy. This is an ordinary phrase. It's not a quote of scripture which says anything significant. And it's not really in the same exact context that we see it in Isaiah. So to construct an ordinary Greek phrase, he had to copy something from the Greek of Isaiah. I guess he wasn't knowledgeable of Greek language and philosophy. Should we really believe anything so ridiculous? And this passes for university level, university level scholarship in 1909? We should not wonder why the world is crumbling under our feet in 2020 as this argument is repeated blindly by many academics today. And it's just bullshit. This is what they call a quote, six words in ordinary Greek in a different context, which says nothing special. This was their first of a small handful of examples. And if they had anything better, they would have placed that first. If the author of wisdom had to consult the Greek copies of Isaiah to construct a simple phrase, there would very likely have been hundreds of passages in wisdom borrowed from Isaiah or other Greek books of scripture. And there aren't. There aren't anything close. The other evidence which they offer is even more precarious. But if a phrase of just six words qualifies as a quote, think about that, as they assert, when it really states nothing of doctrinal or prophetic significance, then all the literature of classical antiquity can be called into question in that same manner. If I can find one short and insignificant phrase from Genesis, constructed similarly to a phrase found in the writings of Plato or Homer, then I could claim that Plato or Homer invented Moses and wrote the Torah. There's no end to the bullshit. For the similarity of six words, you could claim anything. This isn't proof. These men are clowns. But now to move on to the next example cited by the Cambridge Bible, where it is claimed that Wisdom 15.10 quotes from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 20. And this passage of the Septuagint doesn't say what Isaiah 44.20 says in the Masoretic text. So for that, because three words are the same, three words, then they use that as proof that the wisdom of Solomon quoted an exclusively Greek copy of scripture because it doesn't say what the Hebrew says. And it's three words in a different context than they appear in Isaiah. It's three words. Wisdom 15.10. His heart is ashes. They are the three words. It's three words in, in, in Greek or the same, but not the pronoun. Heart is ashes. They're the three words. His heart is ashes. His hope is more vile than earth. 
and his life of less value than clay. In Isaiah 44, 20, know thou that their heart is ashes and they err, and no one is able to deliver his soul. Ye see, ye you will not say, there is a lie in my right hand. Here, there is a mere three-word similarity in the phrase, spodos hecardia, which is literally, ashes is the heart. And we have to add in the word for is. Forms of the Greek verb aini, which means to be, are often implied, but the word must be added in English in order for the phrase to make sense. Otherwise, it's just ashes the heart. They're, they're the three words, ashes the heart. Spodos is ashes, and he is the, and cardia is heart. The phrase in Isaiah differs from the Masoretic Hebrew, as well as the common translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which seem to properly say, he tends ashes. However, that alone does not prove that the three words in Wisdom 15.10 are a quote of the divergent Septuagint reading of Isaiah 44.20. If at least most of Isaiah 44.20 were found in Wisdom, the argument might have merit, but merely because Solomon had used a similar phrase does not make it a quote. The context in which the phrase is used in wisdom differs significantly from the context in which it appears in Isaiah, and it cannot possibly be perceived to be a quote. Perhaps the translators of Isaiah liked the phrase as, as it appeared in wisdom, so they copied it from Solomon. Of course, that is also absurd, but it is just as logical as, as their argument is that Solomon quoted Isaiah. Now for their final example, where they claim that Wisdom 12.12 quotes from two different passages of Job chapter 9. And I'll read Wisdom 12.12. 12. For who shall say, what hast thou done? And that's actually, except for the word for, where it says, who shall say, what hast thou done? That's the first part. That, they say, is a quote from Job chapter 9, verse 12. Or who shall withstand thy judgment? And the words, who shall withstand, they claim is a quote from Job 9.19. Or who shall accuse thee for the nations that perish, whom thou made? Or who shall come to stand against thee to be revenged for the unrighteous men? Now that was Wisdom 12.12. Now in Job it says, If he would take away, who shall turn him back? Or who shall say to him, What hast thou done? Now, in wisdom, where it says, who shall say what has, for who shall say what hast thou done, we see, tiskar erai, ti epoiesas, hey, and, and that's it. That's, that's enough. I'm reading too far. And in Job, we see, hey, tis erai, atu, ti so there are fragments that are different in each one. 
But there are four words in common in Wisdom 12.12 with Job 9.12. Basically, who shall say, what hast thou done? I know it's seven words in English, but it's four words in Greek. Who shall say, what hast thou done? In Job 9.12, it's who shall say to him. There's, an, there's a pronoun in there. What hast thou done? In Job 19, Job chapter 9, verse 19, we read, For indeed he is strong in power. Who then shall resist his judgment? So in Wisdom 12, 12, we read, Or who shall withstand thy judgment? And the words in question are, Tis antistesitahi. Antistesitahi is a verb. Second person, singular. Who shall withstand thy judgment? Tis meaning who. And antistesitahi being future. So we put who shall withstand thy judgment. It could be who will withstand. So it's who shall withstand. Tis antistesitahi. And then in Job, we read a very different phrase where it says, who then shall resist his judgment? We read tis, and then we read un, which is therefore, and it's translated as then, and that's fine. Krimatahi, which is judgment, and atu, which is his. Tis, un, krimatahi, atu, which is who then his judgment, because the order in Greek is not the same word order in English. Who then, his judgment, shall resist? The same word that we see in Solomon, antistesitahi. Here, two phrases from Wisdom 12.12, which use common Greek words. They're all common Greek words. There's nothing special about them. They're very frequent. They're used very frequently in the Septuagint. Two phrases which use common Greek words are similar to phrases in two different verses of Job chapter 9. But since the subject material is different, and since Job is from a slightly earlier period than Solomon, neither does this prove that the Greek text of wisdom was written after Job was translated into Greek. And these phrases are not necessarily quotes from Job. They're certainly not quotes from Job. The portion of this passage from Wisdom, which is similar to a portion of Job 9.12, has four words in common, but contains two other words which are not common. That's not a quote. In fact, in the Septuagint version of 2 Samuel 16.10, we see in English, at the end of the verse, the sentence, Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And if we take those same words as they are in the Greek and use the same English words to translate them that we see in Solomon, for who shall we say, what hast thou done? In the Septuagint Greek of Brenton in Second Samuel, it says, who then shall say, Wherefore hast thou done so? It could very easily say, 
who then shall say, what hast thou done? It's the same thing. The Greek reads, tis erai hos ti epoiesas altos, and differs from the phrase in Job 19.12. In the same degree, by two words, than the phrase in Wisdom chapter 12, verse 12. So, does that prove that Job copied from Samuel? Or does it prove that Samuel copied from Job? There are many other similar phrases in Scripture. And to accuse the author of wisdom of copying from Job in this instance is, once again, plainly ridiculous. Actually, when I looked up that phrase, who shall then say, why have you done this? When I looked up the Greek words of that phrase, I found quite a few examples that were very similar. But even worse, the phrase in Wisdom chapter 12, verse 12, which is similar to the portion of Job 9.19, consists of only two words. But in Job, they're not even a phrase. The two words are not even together in sequence. They're separated by three other words. The phrase in question, tis antistesetahi, or who shall withstand, appears twice in wisdom and on six other occasions in the Septuagint, including the passage of Job. So, maybe Solomon quoted one of those other occasions, or maybe they all quoted Job. It's bullshit. It's two words that are common words. None of them are quotes of anything. It's patently ridiculous to even attempt to consider this a quote. But these fools that want to try to discredit the wisdom of Solomon, they sound real good peddling this bullshit, and they get thousands of other scholars, after they write this, they get thousands of other scholars to repeat it over and over again for the last 111 years. But I'm not going to repeat it. No way. This is bunk. <laughs> Where we would assert that Clement of Rome had quoted from the wisdom of Solomon, there are 11 Greek words in question. And only the differences, in the, and only the differences, and, and the, the, I'm sorry, I have a mistake in my grammar here. And the differences in Clement's version are relatively minor compared to the differences in these passages between wisdom and Job. Furthermore, the text of 1 Clement chapter 3, verse 4 shares the phrase, death entered the world, with wisdom chapter 2, verse 24. And in the exact same context where it's speaking in relation to envy and lust. But if wisdom was written by a first century Alexandrian Jew, as some of these critics claim, perhaps the Jew copied from Clement. Either proposition is as absurd as the other. Yet, if there were better examples from the scriptures that can prove that the author of wisdom was merely making quotations from scriptures which had already been translated into Greek, I am certain that these Cambridge University scholars could have found them. The charge is often repeated 
But this is the best substantiation, and it is no substantiation at all. Therefore, the entire charge is exposed as being false, and every academic who has repeated it is guilty for it. They're all clowns. They can't pick up a copy of Ralph Septuagint and just read it for themselves to see how ridiculous these, these charges are, that two words, two common words, five words apart from each other, and, and that's a quote, when those words in the middle aren't, aren't, aren't included in the quote? Are you kidding me? These men got paid for this? I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I just, when I looked into these charges, I found this to be absolutely incredulous. I could rant on about it for an hour. You probably don't want to hear it. The entire charge is exposed as being false, and every academic who repeats it is guilty of it. And what could have been the motive for making it? If I had to guess, I may conclude that it was all done for fear of the Jews, because they hate this book. There are many more, but in our opinion, less significant arguments against an ancient provenance for the wisdom of Solomon. But here I hope to have presented, discussed, and in some degree even dismantled the more notable criticisms of the work. As we proceed with our commentary on the actual text of the book, if there is anything else of significance which we have failed to address here, we will take the opportunity to address it as the points are raised. For my part, as I already explained, an examination of the work itself is the best means by which to judge its authenticity. But before I begin, I must add a disclaimer. As earlier here, I had mentioned the list of citations and allusions found in the Nestle Aland edition of the New Testament. The list basically serves as a cross-reference of New Testament passages where they seem to quote or cite books of the Old Testament and other works, but it is hardly a complete reference. For chapter 1 of Wisdom, it begins at verse 6. Yet, as soon as I read the first verse of Wisdom in preparation for this presentation, I immediately thought of at least three references which relate to the second phrase of the verse. In all of my other commentaries, I've usually ignored all of the cross-references found in Bibles or reference books, but only mention this one here because it is an academic example of how the New Testament writers may have esteemed the wisdom of Solomon. I am certain that once we review this work, it will, it will become manifest that it is much more deeply connected to our Christian scriptures than even the editors of the Nestle Elan text could have imagined. So now we shall commence with the opening, when I wrote this I said verses, but it's really just verse, with the opening verse of the Wisdom of Solomon. And in light of everything we have said here, we shall continue to consider Solomon to be the author of this work. It would take a lot more than the Cambridge Bible scholars, <laughs> I say that with my tongue in my cheek, to convince me that Solomon did not write the wisdom. Love righteousness 
ye that be judges of the earth. Think of the Lord with a good heart, and in simplicity of heart, seek him. Think of Yahweh with a good heart, if this was originally written in Hebrew, and I'm certain that it was. Love righteousness. There are many appeals for the children of Israel to love or to follow after righteousness in Scripture, but none are worded so succinctly. The Greek is but two words. Agapesate dikahiosunen. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8, we read, For I am the Lord who loves righteousness, where forms of the same two words also appear. But once again, I find it doubtful that wisdom was quoting Isaiah, as its detractors had claimed. Later in this chapter, Solomon explains that righteousness is that which comes from God. And later in his book, he connects that concept to wisdom. Where speaking of wisdom in chapter 8, he says, And if a man loves righteousness, her, meaning wisdoms, labors are virtues. For she teaches temperance and prudence, justice and fortitude, which are things, which are such things as men can have nothing more profitable in their life. Ye that be judges of the earth. Solomon is expressing a concept which was later expressed in the Psalms, in a Psalm of Asaph. Apparently, from all of the other Psalms attributed to him, Asaph was a prophet of the captivity, writing sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that 12 Psalms are attributed to Asaph. Sometimes I have the feeling, even though I don't have the numbers in my head, that at least a couple of others were written by him as well, but don't have his name. But let's see material. To Asaph, the 82nd Psalm is attributed, where we read from the Septuagint, a Psalm for Asaph, which should have been translated a Psalm by Asaph, either way is grammatically proper. In the King James Version, it says, a psalm of Asaph, which also works. God stands in the assembly of gods, and in the midst of them will judge gods. How long will you judge unrighteously and accept the persons of sinners? Judge the orphan and poor. Do justice to the low and needy. Rescue the needy and deliver the poor out of the hand of the sinner. They not they know not nor understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth shall be shaken. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. And I believe that this is a messianic prophecy which was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. God standing in the assembly of gods and asking his people, how long will you judge unrighteously and accept the persons of sinners? And that's exactly what they're doing once again today. Christians should not accept the persons of sinners, and Christians should not accept the persons of Jews or anybody else who's not a Christian. These words are poorly understood by denominational Christians for 
obvious reasons. For the children of Israel, who are the assembly of Yahweh, there is only one God, and that is Yahweh. However, if they are his children, he calls them gods. As Joshua Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. And if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, saying that, Christ was citing the 82nd Psalm. Of course, the Psalms themselves also inform us as to whom it was that the word of God came. And that also helps to establish the veracity of our assertions. Thus we read in the 147th Psalm, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. As we cited earlier, Daniel Harrington had spoken of this address which opens the wisdom of Solomon, and he said, it, its implied audience is the rulers of the earth. This reflects a complete lack of true biblical understanding on the part of denominational writers. Since in the context of scripture, such uses refer to the children of Israel, as we have just seen in the 82nd Psalm. But Harrington is correct to imply that for the ancient Hebrews, the functions of God, judge, and ruler all converge, and therefore, where the 82nd Psalm has a word which can mean either gods or judges, it is expected that they be judges of the earth in the verse which follows after their having been called gods. In all of these passages, the word translated as gods, and I mean the passage that I cited from John, as well as the passage that I cited from the psalm, from the psalm of Asaph, from the 82nd psalm. In all of these passages, the word translated as gods, in plural in Greek, is theos, a common Greek word for God. But in Hebrew, it is Elohim. While the plural form is frequently used as a plural of majesty to refer to God himself, it is also used in other contexts to refer to gods, small g gods, or to judges, as it is even sometimes translated in the King James Version, as the term bears either meaning. In Exodus chapter 19, it was told the children of Israel that they would be a kingdom of priests, so they were destined to judge the earth. In Exodus chapters 21 and 22, the Hebrew word Elohim is used in contexts where it refers to men who sit as judges. And in the King James Version, it is translated in that manner as judges. So the gods of the 82nd Psalm were expected to judge the earth. And, and that's a reference to the children of Israel who were given that, that responsibility of being a kingdom of priests, of servants to God. Now, under the New Testament, the children of Israel have not been relieved of their obligation to serve as judges of the earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read in the words of Paul of Tarsus, Dare any of you 
having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, you are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels, ostensibly fallen angels. How much more do things that pertain to this life? Paul, informing his readers that this was their ultimate destiny, was appalled because they had failed in their obligation to judge rightly among one another rather than submitting to the ungodly worldly courts. We read a similar admonition to what Solomon has made here in the closing verses of the second psalm, which is essentially also made to the children of Israel, not only to those of David's own time, but since this is a messianic prophecy, also to those who would ultimately accept Christ, their Messiah. At the same time warning them that they must accept him as their Messiah. From verse 10 of the second psalm, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled by the little, Blessed are all they that put their trust in him, where Solomon says, think of the Lord with a good heart, and in simplicity of heart, seek him. Brenton put the word heart in parentheses because he added it to the text, just as the King James Version had done. As I said, he followed the King James Version of the Apocrypha instead of following the Greek. And we're going to repeat that over and over again throughout the series, throughout this entire commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. It probably won't be avoided. We would translate the Greek to say, think of the Lord with goodness and seek him with simplicity, which is singleness or sincerity. Seek him with simplicity of heart. Yahweh willing. We will resume our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon at this very point in the near future. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.